Okay? And for the rest of us, let's um, turn, stay there in Revelation 19, where Steve just read. And uh, we have been, over the past year, we have been looking at the book of Revelation um, since, since January. And so this has been a long trek through it. We took a uh, hiatus after the, the letters to the seven churches, and we looked at biblical prophecy for a short while so that we would have a, a, a biblical perspective as we came to the book of Revelation. And uh, again, I am mindful of that as I studied for this message today, that how many people just, they, they have only tried to interpret Revelation based upon Revelation, which is important, that's local context. However, Revelation is not void of the rest of Scripture, but rather many things that are stated in the book of Revelation are on the heels of the prophecies that were given in the Old Covenant and then as well by Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25 and by Paul throughout Corinthians and his letters to the Corinthians and his letters to the Thessalonians and to the Galatians and such. And so um, we have to kind of remember all these things as we come together in this. Now, specifically, we know that there is a, a divine, if you would, outline that Jesus himself gave about his revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, he asked John to write about the things which were, the things which are, and the things that shall be. And so when we passed into chapter 4, we turned into the things that shall be. And so we have been in the things that shall be for many months now. Okay, And so on your sermon note sheet, you have a, uh, an outline there that on the side in one of those frames that kind of give you an idea of where we are in all that. And you can see that in the things that shall be, um, coming through the bulls of wrath, that we are toward the ends of that. And what we're talking about today really still, in my mind, is, has to be contained within the, the context of the bulls of wrath um, because we're at the very end of the last three and a half years. And so though this is not a bull of wrath, just as the last two weeks as we discussed um, Babylon, the great harlot and the, the beast and, and Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen, that really isn't one of the, the seven bulls as well. That's kind of the culmination of the bulls. This as well is that as well. So this is at the end of those, the last three and a half years. This is at the end of the seven years, the, the, the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? Um, there are overview sheets on the back as well, the nice color copied ones. You're welcome to those. Those are free. And so to kind of give you an idea, coming through the book of Revelation, where things fit color-coded-wise. Um, but again, remember that as we come into Revelation 11 and beyond, that this is that final week of Daniel's vision of, of the 70 weeks. Remember how God came and told him that there were 70 weeks declared for his people? And so this is that final week. And so we know that that week, each week, is um, seven years. And so this is a, a seven-year period. The first three and a half years is when the, the two witnesses were on the earth. They, they witnessed for three and a half years, and at the end of three and a half years, they're killed. God allows them to be killed. God allows their body to be paraded, if you would, laid out for, every, for the whole world to see. The whole world rejoices. There's the giving of gifts because the two witnesses of God have been killed. But at the end of three and a half days, their bodies are resurrected. They're raptured, if you would. They're, they're raised up. Uh, and so the whole, whole world sees that. And so that begins then this last three and a half years where we see the, the wrath of God begin to be poured out upon the world. And so that's where we're at now. We're at the end of those three and a half years. And we are in probably, I would say, is the passage of Revelation that should bring the greatest joy and the greatest excitement to you as a believer. Now, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior... This passage we're coming into, chapter 19, not necessarily the one we're going to talk about now, but its continuation next week, is probably the most horrendous passage. If, if everything else hasn't been bad enough throughout all the other seals and, and trumpets, and then you get into the bulls of God's wrath, right? If that hasn't been bad enough, that the end of this is bad, will be bad by itself. I have called chapter 19 a tale of two suppers. It was the best of times. It was the... What, Dickens fans? The worst of times. It all depends on which supper you were going to. Because in the beginning of chapter 19, we read about the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the end of the chapter 19, we read about the carnage supper of the great God. And I don't know about you, but I know I'm looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who are on the earth who have made it through these seven last seven years who have accepted the mark of the beast, they will be there for the carnage supper 
of the, of the uh, great God. Today we want to look at the first of those suppers, and that is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we want to, there is so much that goes into this, uh, more than what we just read in chapter 19, into this marriage supper, that I want to take a, a moment, if you would, and give background as we come into chapter 19 and talk about the, the picture that's here. Because the picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb is the picture of a Jewish wedding, a Jewish marriage, if you would. And what is going on right now is that the bride is going to come. It's not the wife of the Lamb. In chapter 21, she's called the wife of the Lamb. But here she's called the bride of the Lamb because she's not yet the wife. She will be the wife by the end of our, our, our session today, right? Well, not really. But anyways, by, at least prophetically speaking as we teach, she'll be the, she'll be the wife. Okay? But in this process of a Jewish wedding, there are people who debate how many different sections there are. But I'm going to tell you there's four. There's four phases of a Jewish wedding. The first phase we see in Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. So if you would, turn to Matthew, keep your fingers in Re Revelation 19. We'll, we'll come back there. But let's turn to Matthew 22. And let's look at one of Jesus' parables regarding this future marriage. Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, verse 1 to 14, we read, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all the things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burnt up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now Jesus gives in this, this parable some pictures of the kingdom of heaven and what it's like, and he talks about this, this marriage that's going to happen. What's the very first phase, if you would, the very first segment of a Jewish wedding? No, you missed it. Not announcement, not the betrothal, not the invitation. What happened the very first thing? He arranged it. There was an arrangement. There was an arrangement. Now, this is a big deal because we don't understand that. And I've tried to do this with some of my kids, but it hasn't worked out in our society. But, um, but the idea back in that society was that the parents really knew better than the kids about who would be the best mate for them. And so the parents went and they arranged a marriage. Now, the kids were looking at me like, you're nuts. <laughs> I would never. In our culture, that would be very hard to do. But in their culture, it was. Okay? This is what, how Jewish marriages were, were, were set up. Do you remember... Um, how many of you have seen uh, Fiddler on a Roof? Okay, some of you have, okay? It's a good movie. You've got to watch it. It's, it's a very spiritual movie. Um, anyways, it really is. One day, if you want to talk to me, I think I find a very great spiritual lesson in it, but that's for another day. But in it, there's a part where Tavia is talking to Golda, and, and they're, they're, they're talking about this new concept of love, love that's out there, and, and people are getting married because they love each other, you know? But they didn't get married because they loved each other. They got married because their parents arranged it. And when was the first time they met each other? On their wedding day. They'd never seen each other. They didn't even know each other. Never saw what each other looked like. Until all of a sudden, there they were, the wedding day, and they met each other. And they said, our father and our mother said we'd learn to love each other. <laughs> you know? And so I want to know, after 25 years, do you love me? <laughs> you know? And uh, it's an amazing thing. Because love, if you would, is not a feeling, is it? It's not the tingles, and that's what we apply to love today and what we apply to marriage.
But what they understood at that point, love was a, a commitment. It was a decision. It was a commitment. I choose to love you. Okay? And so we have this arrangement that's going to that's gonna happen here. Okay? Now, in this arrangement, there are two principles, or two principal characters, if you would. Okay? There is, first of all, not one of the two, but there is the, the fathers. We should include that, right? We have the, the father of the groom and the father of the bride who are arranging the marriage, right? And that's going to come into play in just a moment. But there are two principles that are in there. First of all, we have the, the groom. Now, this should be without saying, but who is the groom of the wedding that we're talking about? Jesus Christ. How do you know? No, it doesn't say that. What does it call him? It calls him the lamb. It's the marriage supper of the lamb. Okay, and so, well, I mean, because, you know, we do our, our investigative reporting here, right? And we know, based upon the rest of the book of Revelation, that Jesus Christ is the lamb, okay? And so we know that this is Jesus Christ. Now, the, one of the, the, the things that becomes a, a greater debate, and that is, who's the bride? Who's the bride? Now, because as we look at this, we start to say, who's the bride? There are many people who want to say that the bride is, ah, Israel. Let's start with Israel first. They, they want to say that, because we're getting there, I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you that the bride is the church. I mean, that, we're, 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 we're kind of like-minded here, so hopefully we're all going to come in thinking it's the church anyway. But there are many people who say it's Israel. And they say that because they believe that the church has supplanted Israel, that we are Israel, okay? And that God has foregone the, the, the covenants, if you would, the promises that he made to Israel, and he's brought those over to the church, okay? Now you say, really? That, that would be amillennialism? Many Presbyterians believe that, okay? Now, that's not picking on Presbyterians, but that tells you an idea of a doctrine that's out there. It's called amillennialism. They don't believe that there's a millennium. They believe that we're living in it right now, okay? And so, um, an amazing thing. And so, there are many people who think that this might be Israel. Well, I believe that the bride very clearly is the church, okay? Why do I think it's the church? Well, turn to Romans 7. And I think that it's important, though, it may be a no-brainer, you may come in here and say, well, of course it's the church. But I think it's important for us to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us, to know why we believe what we believe, and not just because you grew up in a church that believed it was the church. Does that make sense? Okay? So in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, Paul is writing, and he's, he's using the illustration of a, of, of a marriage and talking about freedom and stuff like that, so that's the context. But in verse 4 he says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law, through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we, should be that we should bear fruit to God. So who is he saying that we should be married to? Jesus Christ, okay? Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, a passage that we'll talk again about later, as we will Matthew 22. Ephesians 5, 23 to 32. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So ought husbands to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever yet hated his flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the church does, the, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. Now, what is the picture? What is the teaching that's going on here in Ephesians twenty, Ephesians chapter five, verse twenty-three, and, and, and on? Marriage. First of all, the, the marriage relationship. Let's just talk about the marriage relationship. Because when we go into chapter 6, verse 1, we talk about the children being obedient to their, to their parents, right? And in verse 4 of chapter 6, it's the parents, the, the father, provoking not the children to wrath, but bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And then beginning in verse 5, we read about the, the, the employee-employer-slave-master relationship. So from chapter 5, verse 3, and actually um, verse 23, and actually, we could go to the submit one another within the, in the body. There are the relationships that we have in life and how the, how the gospel, if you would, 
how God oversees those relationships and how we should interact with one another because of Jesus Christ being our authority. Does that make sense? Okay, so in the context then of this very one, this very one has everything to do with a husband and wife relationship. I say this, it should be a no-brainer to you, but you'd be amazed how many people want to say that this has nothing to do with Christ in the church being a husband and a wife then. They say, well, no, it doesn't say that the church is the bride. It's really the body. It's talking but it has nothing to do there. The analogy that is being portrayed is that Jesus Christ is the husband and the church is the bride. Okay? And so there are others there in uh, ch- chap- uh, chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians 2. Paul says, you know, I, I espoused you to be a virgin to one husband. So there are passages where we're told overwhelmingly that the church, the church is that bride, that we are considered to be the bride. But in this, then, in this arrangement, okay, when the arrangement is made, you have the father of the groom coming to the father of the, of the bride saying, hey, I would like your daughter to be a bride for my, my son. I think that they would be a good match. And so the father of the bride then says what? No. He may say, I think about it, but that comes after the fact. What, what does he say first? How much? How much what? What's the dowry? What's the bride price? There's a dowry that goes into this. Now, you know, it could be a couple cows. It could be a couple chickens, depending on what she looked like. It could be, you know, anyways, but um, we'll, we'll leave that go. Anyways, but it, if they're influential families, it could be a high price that was paid. What was the price that God paid so that you would be his bride? His very life, his son. For God so loved the world. For God in this manner loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The dowry. And now I can't prove this. This is, this is a, a Bob's wandering, okay? So don't write this in your Bible as inspired. This is Bob's musing. But as I was, I was meditating on this, and I was, I was just, just dumbfounded about all this. And I started to analyze the father thing here. Okay, who's the father of the bride? Well, we say God because He's the Creator. But not in this instance. Who does Jesus say that you is their father? Satan, the devil, because we sinned. And we gave ourselves over to Satan. And as I was musing on this, the, the line in which in the wardrobe kind of came into my brain here, and the, you know, the deep, deeper magic and all that kind of stuff, which I wish he wouldn't have used magic stuff, but C.S. Lewis. But you can almost picture, you know, how they, they picture in the line in which in the wardrobe about the, the white witch not understanding the deeper magic. She thought she, she had it all together because she was going to be able to kill Aslan, but she didn't understand the, 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 deeper, the deeper part of it, the, the higher meaning. Could you almost get it when, when, when God, the Father, comes to Satan and says, what, do you, what, what it will take? And he says, kill your son. The one you're going to give to be the, the groom, right? So if you want him to be the groom, he's got to die. And Satan thinking what? Huh? I'm going to win. That takes care of it. It's, it's a done, done deal. And God, the Father, says what? You walked right into my plan. And so the dowry is the death of his son, his only son, the one whom he loved. And we see the illustration then of Isaac there as well. So that was the arrangement. But right on the heels then of the arrangement that the, the, the fathers say it's a deal, it's a done deal, we enter into what's called a Betrothal period, otherwise known as a period of preparation, a time of preparation. Now, this time of preparation actually could go on for 30 years, depending on when the, the marriage actually took place. It could be for 12 years. It could be for one year. Okay, But this betrothal period is for a particular purpose. Let's turn to John 14. John 14, a passage that probably many of you know and probably could quote to me right now. But Jesus, again, is speaking to his disciples, and he tells them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. 
For in my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Okay? And so Jesus says that based upon that, that arrangement that the Father has made, that you will be my bride, we now enter into this betrothal period. And I am leaving now to go prepare the place. See, because in this betrothal period, the groom has a responsibility. The groom has to go through some preparation. And his preparation is to prepare a place for the bride to live. Okay? So we're told by Jesus that he's actually going back to his father's house to prepare a room. Now, the idea, the picture here is we think mansions. And maybe there is a mansion just over the hilltop for me, okay? But the reality is that the picture back then was he would be going back to his father's estate. His father would give him a portion of it or allow him to build a, an extension off of the manor that in which he lived in. And so he would go back, and he would literally, if he was going to be building onto the father's mansion manor, because eventually the manor would become his, okay, that he would actually be building then a, a, an, an addition, if you would, onto that manor, onto that house. And so that when he would go to get the bride and bring her back, they would live in that addition. Now, there's a potential that he could build another house on the property, okay? But more than likely, the picture that Jesus is talking about, building this room, this dwelling place, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. And that is that I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a room for us, for you. You're going to come back and you're going to live with me. Now, in this, though, is an interesting thing as well um, to talk about the identity of the place. So we have the object of the preparation, that is to prepare a room, but then is the identity of place. Specifically, does anybody know by name the name of the place that we're going to go dwell? Zion, heaven, keep going, earth, ah, the new Jerusalem. Good, that's exactly right. We have a winner, but it was a fourth guess, so you don't get anything. Okay, so. Um, turn back to Revelation 21. Now you're all wondering, what, if, what we would have gotten if we got it within three? Nothing, I would have said that would have been three. You would have had it in two. Anyways, in Revelation 21, look at verse 2. It says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Drop down to verse 9. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bulls, filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away into the in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And so we have a new Jerusalem that's going to come. The first bride that we read about in the scriptures is Israel. Israel is referred to as a bride. She is the bride of God, God the Father. In the Old Testament, she is referred to as the bride. But she was married to God, and she went into harlotry. She committed adultery, and then God would receive her back again, but he would not receive her back as a chaste virgin, as a bride. He would receive her back as his adulterous wife, his wife who came back. Do you get it? And when he received her back as his wife, she would live where? The earthly Jerusalem. That's what we're talking about. During the, 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 um, the time of the seven years where God is going to deal with Israel one more time, and then they have the, the millennium, the thousand years where Christ is going to reign. And so you have Israel living there. But we're told then that the heavens and earth are going to pass away, right? And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And along with the new heaven and a new earth, there's going to be a new Jerusalem. And this Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem, is not the bride of God, the wife of God, but rather she is the wife of Christ, the Lamb. She's the dwelling place of the bride. And so when Jesus says that he's going to prepare a place for us, it's in this heavenly city, if you would, called the New Jerusalem. We'll get there when we get to chapter 21, and we'll talk more about it, but just for now, to whet your appetite, that's talking about our, our dwelling place that's going to be there. 
Secondly, then, we talk about, in Ephesians 5, 23 to 32, which we just read, about the preparation of the bride, okay? Because during this time of betrothal, there is a period of the bride's preparation as well. And we're told in Ephesians 5, 23 to 32, that Christ does what for the church? What is, the, what is Christ seeking to do for the church? The sanctifier. The sanctifier. To wash her, all that kind of stuff. That's exactly right. Okay? But the idea is the sanctification. What is the object of the sanctification? What is the object? Why does he want to have her set apart? To present her to himself, what? Without blemish. Okay? To be holy, spotless, without blemish. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I referred to this earlier, Paul says, and you can turn here if you want, but it's only one verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul says to the, to the believers of Corinth, he says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And so God's desire, Christ's desire, Christ's purpose in this betrothal period is for us to be sanctified. Now the next question then is, what's the means of that sanctification? How does he, how does he do that? How does he accomplish this sanctification? Turn with me back to John 17. In John chapter 17, we have Jesus' high priestly prayer for the disciples. Remember, this is when he was, um, he was getting ready to, to die, and he takes this opportunity to talk to the Father, and we have recorded here his, his prayer. And in chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus asks the Father to do something specific, and that is to sanctify them. And he says how? Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so our sanctification is going to be able to derive from us knowing the truth of God. And we know the truth of God, God's absolute truth, by reading his word. A few weeks ago when we talked about prayer, we talked about the importance of prayer, or talking about the importance of the word too. In John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, it says, Then said Jesus to those Jews who believed on him, If you continue in my word, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, it'll set you free. Not set you free to do whatever you want to do, but the context was it'll set you free from the bondage to sin. And that's where Jesus talks to them about being uh, of their father, the devil. Because the devil was, is, is, the, is the father of sin. And so the reality is that this sanctification, this time of preparation that I am in, that you are in right now, that his church is in right now, is so that we can be set apart, that we can be sanctified, that we can be made holy unto God through his word. I ask myself, as I ask you, how engaged am I in that process? That's God's desire. For me to be spending time in his word, that I can be sanctified, that I can be the chaste virgin. Not just me, I know I'm, I'm part of the church, but the church is what? People, not a building. And in order for it to be the church to be chaste, I would think that as a whole we'd like to be what? Sanctified. And so I understand that I'm not going to be perfect here on the earth, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. I know that I'm, that's not going to happen here, but it still ought to be what? It ought to be my goal. Isn't that what he, he called me for? That he predestined me to be conformed to the image of his son? Romans chapter 8, verse 29. God's desire to give me salvation is for me to become Christ-like. And so Peter closes out his second epistle by saying, but grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do I grow in that? By in his word. And not only has he challenged me to do that, but he gave me a special gift that I would do that as well. In John chapter 14, 15, and 16, Jesus interspersed in all of his other comments to disciples says that it's profitable for him to leave for them. It's going to be profitable for them. They, they, get, they didn't get it. They said, what do you mean? I mean, we want you to stay. And he says, no, you don't get it. It's better for you for me to leave. Because if I leave, I'm going to send you the Holy Comforter. 
And the job of the Holy Comforter when he comes is not only to convict the world of righteousness, judgment, and sin, but it's also to lead you into all truth and remind you of my teachings. So, in this betrothal period, as Jesus, as the groom, is preparing the room for his bride, the Father does something special. The Father sends a tutor to the bride to help her get ready to be the proper bride for his son. This is important because in the betrothal period, where is the bride left? With her family, which in this situation, this spiritual union, is the world. That's exactly right. And so if we understand that, then we as the bride are being left in this unregenerate family. I mean, you know, I mean, you think about it, sometimes you, people like to talk about their family. You just don't understand my family. I mean, it, ooh, you, I mean, it, it is hard for me to live as a, well, we all, if you would understand, are in the same way as Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. We live in a, an unrighteous generation. We are living in a world that calls what is evil good and what is good evil. We're living in a world that is progressively becoming hardened to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That many of those who claim to be his are being deceived by that which is evil and their hearts are waxing cold. Because evil will abound, the love of many will wax cold. And so Jesus and the Father send us the tutor, if you would, the comforter, the encourager, the teacher, our advocate. There are so many words that are used of the Holy Spirit. And it's his job then to, to teach me. But you know what? Again, what is he going to teach me? What is he going to remind me of? Christ's words. And so if I'm not reading Christ's word, guess what? It's kind of hard to be tutored. Many of you know I love math, and I, I tutor in math, and I, and I teach Greek, right? Okay? If somebody comes to me, and they want me to tutor them in math, and, and I give them instruction, and they don't go do it, and they come next week, and they don't know it anymore, it only takes me a few weeks, and I say, I can't tutor you anymore. Unless I really need the extra, you know, money to, to for, that, for that hour, then I just keep teaching them the same thing week after week after week after week. But more than likely, I'm going to tell it to the parents. You know, listen, they're not doing what I instructed them to do. We can't move forward if they're not going to listen to my words. If they're not going to apply my words. If they're not going to heed my instruction, this time is meaningless. Does that make sense? We are in a period of preparation. Do you sense it? Or are you being distracted by your family? if you would, the world that you're living in? Are you being distracted by the, the Gentiles, if you would? I mean, I know I'm a Gentile, but you, you get the picture that's there in the ways of the world. Or are you saying, yes, I get to be the bride of the prince, the son of the king, the king himself, the king of kings, the lord of lords, and I get to be his bride. I'll do anything. I mean, honestly, girls, you pick that hunk, whoever the hunk is, okay? You know, whoever that, that super-duper dude is that you want to be the, the wife of. And he came and sent word to you and said, you're it. But I want you to get ready because a year from now, if you're ready, we're going to get married. Now, I know I put an if there because I, we're in the world, you know. But I guarantee you, most women are going to do what? Most girls are going to what? They're going to get ready. They're going to, I mean... They're, I mean, if it's the one that they want to be with, they're going to do whatever it takes to get ready for it. We show how much we really care about being the bride by how involved in the preparation process we want to become. Do you really think that Jesus is preparing a room for you like you're preparing yourself for him? What would it look like? What would that room look like? If, if, Jesus, if Jesus worked as diligently for you as you are for him, you know, he's preparing for you like you're preparing for him. What kind of room would you have? Would it be a shack? 
a lot of holes in the ceiling. Was maybe just roughed in. You know, just kind of has the two by fours exposed. You know, you got you got the foundation, got a little bit of the uh, the the outer shell there. That's good enough. It's dry, right? I mean, I can I can live there. It's only leaking in that corner. It doesn't bother me over in this corner. It's a preparation process. It's important. But we have the third process, and that is what we're we're going to be we're looking at here in Revelation 19, and that is the marriage. But again, there is a, a process in this marriage phase, okay? And what's the very first step of the, of the actual marriage phase? Does anybody know? The fetching of the bride. That's exactly right. The fetching of the bride. See, because in that culture, again, that there's, um, there's a point where the groom then comes back for the bride. And that's what we read in John 14 where he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. And then he says, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will what? I will come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to fetch the bride. We refer to this as the rapture, or as we would from my series, the harpazo of the church. Rapture is from raptoro, that's Latin. The Greek word is the word harpazo. Okay? And so he's going to come, and he's going to gather us up to himself. And so we see as well... To, in Paul's writings to the Thessalonians, let's turn to um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4 of this gathering up. And you can see how, how as we looked at biblical prophecy before we came into this, how much all this is now coming together in here. Paul tells the, the believers of Thessaloniki in the fourth chapter of Verse 13 says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so we're told that there's going to be this gathering. And then he says, therefore comfort one another with these words. This is a time of comforting, of encouragement, of exhortation. There, that The fact is that Jesus is going to what? He's going to come again, and when he does, what's he going to do with us? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right? We are going to be transformed. We're going to go through a metamorphosis. This mortal shall put on immortality. This, this corruptible shall put on incorruption. What an exciting moment it's going to be. Now, those who have died before us, where are they going to be? They're going to be in the grave, right? But when Jesus comes, well, they're going to be in the grave, okay? But when Jesus comes back, what's going to happen? They rise first. They're, I mean, Maybe it takes that extra split second, that extra twinkling of an eye. I mean, how fast is in the twinkling of an eye? It's that fast, right? So, I mean, how much before? But just in case you're wondering, God gave you a little bit of a, a chronology there, just so you know that, you know, in, in a, a, the, the split of a nanosecond before you're raised up, the dead are going to raise up first. I don't think we're going to see that we're going to fully comprehend the, uh, the, the, the time differential there. You get it? It's going to, to us, it's going to appear what? Like it's simultaneous, like it's all happening at the same time. But just so you know, God's going to honor those who have passed away before you. They get, they, get the, they get the priority. They're going, to, they're going to raise first. And then as they start coming out of the ground and they, they kind of join you at that level, then you kind of get to go too. You know? So it's kind of all going at one time. This is the, 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 the fetching away. What an exciting time. Now, in Jesus' parable in Matthew 25, this is the parable of the ten virgins. You all remember that, that parable? In Matthew 25, we're told that, that the, um, the bridegroom was going to come. Matthew 25, beginning at verse 1. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in the vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming! Go out to meet him! 
Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Can you give us some oil? <laughs> Our lamps are going out. But the wise answered and said, What? No, lest there shouldn't be enough for us and you. But you better go out to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went out to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came, also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. The bridegroom is coming back. We're told to be ready. To be watching, to be ready. It's a time of what? Betrothal, a time of preparation. Are you preparing? Are you waiting? Do you believe that Jesus could come back today? We're told over and over again that when the parables are given about Jesus' return, that he came when? When they weren't looking for it. Are you looking for it? Now, you say, well, I don't want to look for it then because he's not going to come back. <laughs> okay? Don't go there. The point is that we're not supposed to be of the night. We're supposed to be of the day. We're supposed to be sober. We're supposed to be waiting for it. We're supposed to know that he's coming back. Not like those who are of the world eating and drinking and giving a marriage and acting like the end's not going to come. You should see the things that are going on in the world and understand that the world is pregnant and about ready to give birth and understand the time of his return is near. I don't know the day or the hour, but I know it's drawing nigh. And honestly, from my perspective, I believe it's in my lifetime. And you ought to believe it's in your lifetime. You need to, to plan financially and such, like he's not coming in your lifetime, but you need to live like he is. So we had the fetching of the bride. And as he had the fetching of the bride, he takes him back, and, and then they have the, the ceremony. And in the ceremony, in chapter 19, we see a part of the ceremony that, that the, uh, the bride has on this gown. Okay, In chapter 19, we read about um, this gown that she has on. In, um, in verse 7 and 8, we read, let us, there, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, I want to note here the bride's adornment. Okay? And, and in this, because it says that the bride has done what? She's made herself ready. You get the words. She hasn't been made ready. She made herself ready. And the robe that she's wearing is a, a robe of fine linen, and it's made of what? Analogy here. What, what? Righteous acts of the saints. The righteous acts of the saints. Not the righteousness of Christ, but the righteous acts of the saints. Now, some could struggle with this, and, and there are some interpreting who do, and state that this is proof that we're saved based upon what? Works. There you go. You're getting it. Okay. But we know from the, the context of Scripture, specifically Ephesians chapter 2 is a good verse here, for by grace are you saved through faith, and it's not of works, lest any man should boast. But then he goes on and says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Oh. So, my own righteousness is like a what? Filthy rag. Can I come to God based upon my own righteousness? The answer is no. I need the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. But once I receive his imputed righteousness, once he has cleansed me, if you would, at that moment, I have, I have this, this positional holiness, positional sanctification, if you would. I am set apart unto God. But I enter into this phase called practical sanctification where I am now being set apart. Though I am positionally set apart, I can't lose my salvation. But then I enter into that betrothal period, right? And during that betrothal period, I am supposed to be what? Being set apart more and more to Jesus Christ. So that one day, my sanctification will become actualized. And I will be eternally sanctified. Do you get it? And so, what is, I mean, 
I understand the white robe that we're going to get is because of Jesus Christ, right? However, in that linen, in that there is a joint, again, a joint working, and we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school, okay? And with the witnessing that we talked about the joint work between the Holy Spirit and, and us working in evangelism. Well, the same way here. Now, faith without works is dead. And so, if I am truly saved by faith, according to Ephesians chapter 2, what am I going to do? I'm going to do good works. Why? Because God before ordained that I should walk in them. And in Philippians, we read that, that he says, um, that God is the one who is working in me, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Therefore, I'm not supposed to be murmuring and disputing that I may be blameless and harmless, a son of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom I may shine as a light in the world, holding forth the word of life. Yes? And so, I didn't think about it before, that this coat is kind of has that linen look, doesn't it? You know, it's not quite the whiteness of, of the, what they're going to be. But this is the kind of the picture, that the, the fabrics are being woven as you, as you live. And so the church has this opportunity, you individually as the church, to serve Jesus Christ. And it will be recognized. Not because of your own prowessness, but because of the faithfulness of God working through you. Does that make sense? And so we have this ceremony, this, the, the coming together. And in this ceremony as well, the next phase is they, they, they have this ceremony. But the ceremony has to be consummated. Now, this is a, a touchy point that I don't like to shy away from I, I, because to me it, it is the, the fullness and I think that we, full, we miss so much. Back in Ephesians chapter 5, you remember when Paul was said that we're of his body and of his blood, or his, okay, of his bone and of his flesh, and he says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be cleaved unto his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He quotes a portion of scripture. What portion of scripture did he quote? Genesis chapter 2. Specifically, what is it about? Adam and Eve, specifically, what is it about? Be pure, keep us clean. Huh? Not the godly seed, but before that, what comes before the godly seed? The marital relationship. Okay? We understand that. We understand the two becoming one. That they, they, they weave, they cleave, right? Well, suddenly we come into Ephesians 5 and we kind of neglect that part. But again, the picture that is being talked about is the husband and the wife. And talking about the full unity that there is between a husband and a wife, right? And so he talks about becoming the unity that there is, the fullness, the oneness that there is. And then he goes and quotes that verse. And he says, now this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Husbands, wives. Understand that the marriage bed is to be kept undefiled because it is the fullness, if you would. Now, don't take this. There are cults that go the wrong way on this, okay? But it, it is the fullness of the picture of the unity between Christ and the church. I am body, soul, and spirit. And there are people who can become one in the back of a 57 Chevy. And it's done away with. There are people who can, they, they, they can even still have tingles towards somebody and then become one physically. But if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then your spirit is alive in Christ. And when you come together, I believe that you should be able to come together and you should come together, not just physically. The world does that. That's called eros. That's, that's selfish love. That's how can you please me. It's not phileo, and that is, I will seek to please you, and you know, and but ultimately it's going to be for me. But it's that agapao love, and that is, it is selfless love. And that is that I come together then with my bride, with my wife, not just physically, not just emotionally or soulfully, if you would, but I come together spiritually. I understand that my bride is the greatest gift apart from Jesus Christ to me. And that that moment can be 
an act of worship, not a dirty thing, but something that God has given to us for his glory, and to, I think, intimate intimately the intimacy that the church is supposed to have with Jesus Christ. It's a mystery. And that's what Paul says. It's something hard to grasp. It's something hard to see. But I would challenge you men, if you really understood and if you really saw your wife like Christ saw the church and loved the church, that that time, that moment, would transcend from what most of us make it. Ladies, the same for you. There is the time of consummation. Don't go beyond that, okay? Don't. Shh. I don't, I don't understand it other than I understand the spiritual principle that's there. But I understand that that marriage wasn't a marriage until the marriage was consummated. And the virginity of the bride was confirmed. Finally, there was the feast. The feast. And we see this feast is a lot of rejoicing, a lot of excitement going on at this feast. The atmosphere of the supper is, is, is great. There's praise and worship going on over and over in chapter 19. Did you see how many times it's talking about Alleluia? How many times Alleluia is talking about? Verse 1, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor belong to the Lord our God, right? Verse, uh, verse 3, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Then the four and twenty elders and the four living creatures also said what? Amen. Alleluia. Then in verse 5 we read what? Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants. Over and over again, we read the word Alleluia and praise the Lord. Verse 6, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. I always want to sing the, the, the Handel's Messiah. I'll spare you. Um, anyways, but just a phenomenal time. So there's this, this time of praise and worship. Now, what's the, what's, the, um, what's, what's the reason for this atmosphere? It's the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. But the marriage supper of the Lamb is coming on the heels of what? What do they say, literally? What do they say is part of the praise and worship? Because the harlot, say again, her smoke rises because the harlot's being judged. The harlot's being judged. What a picture. What a, what a contrast is going on here. You got this, this great harlot who's robed in, in scarlet and purple and, and all these glittering jewels and everything, right? Seeking to do what? Seduce. Seduce the world. She's, she's, she's seeking to, to, to turn the eyes of men, if you would, to her. And she's seeking to kill the saints. Seeking to destroy the purity, if you would, of the saints. And you got over here the bride, who's adorned in what? Pure white linen and righteous acts. Ladies, time for me to talk to you. Which are you? Which do you portray in the world? Are you putting on the, the scarlet and, and purple and the, 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 all the glittery stuff in order to attract the eyes of men and attract the eyes of the world to you? Or are you seeking, as we're told in 1 Peter chapter 3, to be dressed modestly so that the glory is turned to your head and ultimately to God? Something to think about. They're, these people are rejoicing. I mean, the angels are rejoicing because the harlot got what came to her. And that God had judged her. And that God had avenged the blood of the saints. And now he has shown who was really real because now the marriage is here. Peter says that they're going to be coming in the last days scoffers who are going to say, where is, the, where is this appearing of Jesus Christ? We've heard about this for thousands of years. You may hear this. You may read it in the paper. You may hear it on the radio. There are already scoffers out there. We just need, again, to go back to that betrothal, that preparation period, and make sure we have it. But as well, finally, in this feast, we read about guests that are here. These guests are robed in what? In the white linen. Okay? And so we're told um, about these 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 ones that are here, and it says, um, blessed are those who are what? Who are invited, who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there is a lot of debate on who these guests are, because clearly, okay, follow the logic here, because clearly, if the church is the bride, it can't be what? The guest. How can you be the 
the bride and the guest all rolled into one, huh? And so they, they seek then to try to determine who the guests are. Many have said that they think the guests, and th this is the dispensational view as well, and I'm a dispensationalist, but I don't, I don't go party line on everything here, clearly. Um, they say the guests are Old Testament saints and tribulation saints. Um, I have a problem with that, though. That's saying that the Old Testament saints are already where? In heaven. Not just spiritually, but physically, that they have been resurrected. Now, that could have happened if they all resurrected with Jesus Christ at his resurrection. Okay? That would be the only way that that would have happened. However, we're not told that everybody resurrected at the time, but only that there were many who came out of the, the graves at that time. Now, if that many who came out of the graves were the believers before Christ's days, then, then praise God. Okay? The, old the, the, the tribulation saints... How could it be them? They're a part of the, the, the first resurrection that we re, we're going to read about in Revelation chapter 20, just before the millennium. He said, blessed are those who have a part in the first resurrection, because the second death has no part over them. So it can't be them, because we're in Revelation 19, not Revelation 20. Does that make sense? And so there's you know, these people about who the guests are. Now, you say, then who are the guests? Well, I want to go back then to Matthew 22. To, the, to one of the parables that we read already. Remember I said we'd come back to it. Because we really only talked about the first verse when we talked about the arrangement. And so beginning in verse 2 again in Matthew 22, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, fatted cattle, are killed, and all these things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. He sent out his armies, destroyed these murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways as many as you find, and invite to the wedding. So those servants went out together to the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with what? Guests. Who were the guests? Meaning who? Give me another name. Who are they? The world. But specifically, who are the world? They're believers. They're the ones who came. Israel rejected them. Get the picture? That's the parable. Israel was rejected him. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the, p the power or the authority to be called the sons of God. It is. That's exactly right. Listen, we, we, we try to over-literalize, um, complicate things. That's right. These are just pictures. These are just parables. A parable, and we talked about this um, a long time ago when we talked about parables, a paraboleo, a parable, a parabole is something that's thrown alongside. The word balo is to throw, and para means alongside. It's something that's thrown alongside um, a teaching, to, it's a picture, to give a little bit of clarity to it. And so sometimes we make it more than it is. Clearly, Jesus says that there's going to be a marriage, there's going to be a wedding, and there are going to be guests who are invited. You and I are what? Invited. Now, this really drives the, the, the Calvinists crazy. But anyways, these people are given the opportunity to what? To come or not come. Anyways, put that together with the, uh, the the Calvinist side. Anyways, and do I, believe, I believe in election. I believe in predestination, you know? And so people say, how do they all come together? I don't know. It's not my job. It's God's job. My job is to go out and what? Be the servant and invite more people to come. Hey, we're having a wedding. There's a feast going on. We're having a great time praising God. We're going to live forever in his presence. Don't you want to come? Oh, no. I, I, I got I to polish my shoes. You know, or I'm, I'm going out hunting in the morning. I want to go to bed early. You know, oh no! I, I wish I could. I wish I could be there, but uh, you know, uh, oh the Steelers are playing next week, and I've got to. You know, they're off this week, so I I got to start my preparation this week for the big game. We make excuses. People make excuses why they can't come to the wedding. I think the guests are the believers. 
They're in the, they're in the road. Well, there has to be guests. It's a wedding. But yes, in Revelation 19... That's right. Well, anyways, because, just because there is. Okay. I mean, I mean, honestly, straight up, I mean, it's amazing how much, you know, good, reputable um, scholars. I mean, um, Rennie Showers, some of you may know Rennell Showers. He writes for Friends of Israel. We have Friends of Israel magazines out there. I respect him very highly as a, as a teacher. I don't agree with him here. Uh, John MacArthur, you know. I don't agree with him here. Uh, again, it's the, it is the classic dispensational opinion of trying to, again, place things into our, our theology. And so the Old Testament saints have got to be someplace. So, um, and anyways, and so that's a great question, okay? And the reality is that it's us. It's all about the feast. It's, it's all about being there. And so... This is a, a great time. I'm, again, it's, it, this is the, the, the consummation, of the culmination of our hope. And the question then that I have for you is, will you be a part of it? Are you here today? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you a part of the bride? Because there's another supper we're going to talk about next week, and I'm, you know, I knew this was going to take so long, and I, so I had to split it up, not to mention the fact that what a, what a joyous thing to talk about before we participate in the Lord's Supper. But the next supper we're going to talk about next week is not a joyous thing. It is very ugly. It is very ugly. Which will you be a part of? Though your righteousness is a filthy rag, yet we're saved unto good works. And so we're told that without faith, that our faith without works is dead. What do your works and your righteousness declare about your faith again? You're not going to be saved by your works, but your works really declare what you're working towards. We are in a period of betrothal, a period of preparation, looking toward the return of our Christ, our groom, our bridegroom. Are you preparing yourself? Now, we are having a time, a commemoration of the Lord's Supper. But what's neat about the Lord's Supper is it's not just a remembrance of what Jesus Christ did for us. It is also a foretaste of the feast that we're going to have with him in heaven. Now, many, some of you have heard this before, but when Jesus had that Last Supper with his disciples, it was a part of the, the what? The Passover, the Passover celebration. And in that Passover celebration, in the Passover Seder, they have what's called four cups of blessing, four glasses of wine. Turn with me to, um, to the book of Exodus, chapter 6. I, I talk about this a lot, but uh, it really hit me yesterday that as we come into this, I want to I take you back to the verse that, that I refer to a lot. In Exodus 6, verses 6 to 7, this is a part of where God is, is calling Israel out of the world, if you would, out of Egypt. He's going to deliver Israel. And he gives them four promises, beginning at verse 6, chapter 6. It says, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. I will, first of all, bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Secondly, I will rescue you from their bondage. Third, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And then fourth, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so there are four promises, four blessings of God to his people. First, he says, I will, what? I'm going to bring you out. I will bring you out. Have you been brought out of Egypt? Yes? Did you do it yourself? Did you? Was it your blood that was upon the doorpost of your heart? 
or was it Jesus Christ's blood? He is the lamb that was slain. And so we're told that I will bring you out. Secondly, we're told I will rescue you. Those are the first two cups of blessing. Those two cups occur before the meal. So they would have these two cups of blessings as part of their order, their Seder. And then they would eat. Then they would sup. And after they would sup, after they would eat, there would be the third cup of blessing. And this would be the cup of redemption. This is the cup in the night in which Jesus was betrayed. As he was celebrating the Passover Seder with his disciples, he picked up. And it says, after they had supped, Jesus took the cup. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, drink from it, all of you. For this cup represents the redemption that's in my blood. As they celebrated this Passover, Jesus said, I am the Passover lamb. I am the payment that is made for you. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. But I will no longer drink of the fruit of this cup until I drink it with you in paradise. There's a fourth cup of blessing that Jesus said he wasn't going to participate in until he did it with us in heaven. Guess where that is? Revelation 19, at that marriage supper. When he takes that fourth cup of blessing and he says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And now you know who I am. Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, you believe me because you've seen me. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet what? Believe. But I am looking forward, I'm telling you, to the day my faith becomes sight. And we shall become like him because we shall see him as he is, 1 John chapter 3. And so as we celebrate this time of communion, this time of the Lord's Supper, it's not just a remembrance of what Jesus did for me, which is important because he delivered me. He's rescued me. He redeemed me. But I'm looking forward to the fulfillment, to the final phase, the fourth cup. When this marriage supper happens and Jesus raises that toast and we have that fullness of fellowship with him in his presence. Now we're told that as we come to this time, that we should take this time soberly. That some have eaten and drinking of the body and blood of Christ unworthily, and therefore they eat and drink to themselves damnation. We don't believe that the juice is the blood, nor that the, the, um, the wafer is, or the cracker is the body, but we believe that there is a special significance to it, because God said so. And that we, when we partake of this, we declare that we are in fellowship with one another, and that we're in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And it's not cookies and Kool-Aid. But that it is a, a remembrance. It is a remembrance of what Jesus did for us. And it is a looking forward to what we're going to have. And so we're told by Paul in his letter to the Corinthians that we should take a period of time to prepare ourselves and to judge ourselves that we be not judged. And so we take time then to prepare ourselves, to, to seek God's face. If there's sin in you that God reveals, confess it. Because he is faithful and just to forgive you of sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If there's something between you and your spouse or something between you and somebody else that's here, get it right before the Lord, that there is true fellowship with one another. I'll come up in a moment, and I'll close this in prayer. Let's take some time to prepare ourselves.